I think if you get the right people, the doors come. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I am stoked to have Jen Stoops on the show. Jen, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Jen, what brought you to Austin? So uh, the IMN conference is in town, and uh, I'm presenting tomorrow morning. I have back-to-back panels uh, at 8 a.m. and 8.30. Uh, so that'll be exciting, especially since we're co-hosting an event this evening at 8.30 p.m. So it, 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 uh, I'm going to have to rally tomorrow morning. I, I believe it. It's relatable. Yeah. Flew here from Orlando, wall-to-wall meetings all week long, and sometimes that's just kind of, kind of the way it is. You know? We rally. It's yeah. what we do. We're in uh, property management. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> relatable. So in property management today, but weren't always in property management, I'd love to hear a little bit about how we got here, your background. Where are you from originally? Buffalo, New York. Okay. So from Buffalo, okay. New York, currently living in Charlotte? Yes. Okay. So what what did some of your, what, what did schooling early career look like for you? Uh, so I uh, went to school at the University of Buffalo. I graduated from UB. Uh, I had a degree in business. I wanted to go for my MBA, but I put myself through college. So it was a little expensive, so I decided to get a job right away. So I got a job in a dental practice as an office manager there, and it was a, a pediatric office. She was just starting out her practice, and I was just graduating college, so it was a good fit. Um, I worked there for about six months, and the dentist came to me the one day, and she said, would you consider going back to school? And I was like, well, for what? And uh, she wanted me to be a hygienist for her. And so hygiene is a two-year program normally, uh, but, but I had my four-year degree, so you always take a free education. So uh, I got that done in uh, nine months, going one and a half days a week. And, uh, and so I did that with her until I left Buffalo. And uh, after about a year or so after I got married, we both agreed, you know, we just didn't want to stay in Buffalo. And so left. We went to Florida first. Um, I actually opened a bakery in Florida and had that for about three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <that's laughs> Yeah, let's very, not, very different. Let's not skip over that. Okay. <laughs> so I had no idea about the dental hygienist thing. That's interesting. <clears throat> Did that for a hot minute. How do you go from that to starting a bakery? Yeah. So uh, I did actually go into hygiene in Florida when I first got there. Um, it was a lot different than pediatrics. I enjoyed pediatrics. We did, you know, orthodontics. I was in the OR. Um, so I really enjoyed that. But it was a lot of denture adjustments in Florida. And so it just... Yeah, it just kind of lost its fun. Different vibe. And uh, I always enjoyed baking. And so um, there was a little strip plaza near where our house was. And uh, I used to bake and donate a lot of the stuff. And, and you know, I had friends that would pay me to bake for birthday parties, stuff like that. Um, but my husband thought it would be a great surprise <laughs> to rent out this space in the strip plaza, not far from our house, and said, you should start a bakery. And so I did. <laughs> he surprised you uh, yeah. with the space. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it was a, 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 a little bit of a shock, but I was like, all right, well, let's go for it. So I did. Okay. So like, you know, I'm kind of <clears throat> into baking a bit. This is a really weird segue. My wife had a bakery for a minute. Like what, what, what genre, what types of types of goods, what, what did it look like? Uh, so I was open from 6am to two because the little strip plaza that I was in had, um, it was actually a great location. It had a physical therapy office, a hair salon, um, and it was a, a real estate office. And so there were a lot of people coming in and out of there at that time. <clears throat> and it was actually right um, kind of around the corner from one of the local grocery stores. So I actually did get a lot of traffic, um, but it was so much prep work to get everything done. And I found that I was busiest for like sort of the the breakfast, you know, and lunch crowd. So I did bagels only once a week because they are very difficult to make. They're very time consuming and I hated making them. But so I did those once a week as a specialty. Um, but I did homemade breads every day. So I had them, um, I would get boar's head lunch meat. So the, the boar's head rep would always come in and drop that off. And so I did homemade breads. So I got a lot of the lunch crowd. Um, I did a lot of muffins, pies, cakes. Uh, I'm not a huge cake decorator. Like I can't get all fancy like that, but the basic frosting is good. And what time yeah. of day were you kicking off each day? I would get there usually uh, by about five-ish, maybe a little bit before, because I did a lot of the prep the night before. 
And my grandma actually lived in Florida at the time, a couple miles away. So she would come and help. Oh, wow. She talked to a lot of the customers more than anything, but it was fine. I enjoyed having her there. So it was, it was a good moment in time for her and I. And, and uh, I mean, I enjoyed it. But when the lease was up, I actually, I sold it. Uh, there was a lady in the neighboring town. And she told, she kept telling me that I was stealing so much of her business. We, I mean, we it was fun rivalry. But uh, so when I was done doing that, I uh, sold everything to her. So sold her all my equipment. Um, she actually ended up leasing that space when I got done with it. And I even sold her the rights to the name that I had and got royalties from it for five years. What was one lesson or takeaway that stuck with you from who you were in that season of life and felt like it was kind of impactful for you? I realized you never work harder until you work for yourself. Mm. Yeah, it's baking was a lot of fun until I actually had to do it as work. Then it was a whole different ball game. I mean, the the prep and the stress and the you just don't realize uh, when people have I don't care if it's a restaurant or bakery when they're opening at six seven a.m. They started probably around four o'clock in the morning to get things ready to be opened up. It was it was. It was a lot of work. I enjoyed it. It was a great experience. It taught me a lot about self-discipline, um, but uh, it was definitely hard work. Did it ruin or take away any of the joy from baking? Like, did you did you like have a three-year hiatus from baking in your personal life after that? Yeah, I kind of did. I kind of <laughs> did. And it was funny because, I mean, I love sweets, but people would be like, man, I would get so fat if I had my own bakery. I'm like, I never ate any of it because I just, it was there all the time. So it wasn't all that special anymore. So uh, yeah, my poor husband was like, I don't get any chocolate chip cookies anymore. I don't, you know, I, and I didn't for a while. I just was so sick of it. But now I do it again and I enjoy it. So you you wrap up that small business journey and what do you pivot to next? So uh, I got my real estate license actually in Florida. I'd always had an interest in it, but coming from Buffalo, it wasn't, I thought about doing it there, but uh, I, w I knew I wasn't going to stay in Buffalo. So I opted not to, but it just kept nagging at me. It was always there. And so I got my license in Florida. Um, I, I had a friend that had a small firm there and hung it there. Didn't do a ton with it before we made the decision. Um, in 2004, we were hit with three out of the four major hurricanes that came through. They, we were in the path of, of three out of those four. And that was miserable. And coming from Buffalo, I had never experienced anything like that. So um, it sounds like trains going up and down your road. It was the craziest mm. thing. And uh, so that was not very enjoyable. But in 2005, we got another storm that came through. I think that was Wilma. And so we decided to go up to Charlotte. Uh, it was because it was right around our anniversary. So we decided to go up to Charlotte and spend some time up there for the long weekend because we knew power was going to go out again. And that's miserable because it's always so hot and uh, the air conditioning would be out. And so we went to Charlotte and, and we were there for about four or five days. And I just remember saying, we should put this on our five-year plan. So that was October of 2005. We put our house up for sale in January of 2006, mm. and uh, our house got finished being built in October of 2006, and we moved to Charlotte. So um, I got my real estate license. It wasn't transferable from Florida to Charlotte, so right away I enrolled in real estate school. It took us a few months to get settled in. Um, we had a business. My husband had a business in Florida that he needed to, to sell, and so we were transitioning that. And so while we did that, uh, we were kind of going back and forth. So we actually moved. We closed on our house in October of 06 uh, in Charlotte, but moved there in February of 07. And I enrolled in real estate school right away. And uh, and I met John Bradford in March of 07 and started working for him. And um, he hired me as a broker at first. He was just getting ready to open his office. I think it opened around May of that year of 07. And uh, I remember he called me about three or four days. I started with him full-time in June of 07. And I remember he called me a couple of days before I was getting ready to start there. And he said, would you consider doing property management? And I'm like, well, I mean, I've never done it before, but sure, I'll give it six months. And that was almost 15 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so it was right at the outset of the, the company's inception that you came on board. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. So this kicks off a 15-year journey in property management that takes us here to today. Uh, what is what does the company look like today? Just like for those that don't have any context or know anything about yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, you know, John and I had talked about it for a long time, and I was I was John's right hand, 
And John, probably about five years ago, had gone on to do some other things. First, he you know, ran for North Carolina House of Representatives. And so I remember before he ran, uh, he called me and he said, listen, I need to talk to you about something. And it was on a weekend and work related on the weekend was unusual for him to do. And, uh, and so he said, um, I've, I've got to ask you a question. He said, there were two people that I needed to get on board with this. One was my wife and she's already on board. And the second is you. He said, and I said, what is it? And so he told me he wanted to run for the House of Representatives, but that meant I would be solely in charge of running the office. And, um, and so of course I was like, you know, go, we're good without you, <laughs> you know, go, we got this. And he won and, uh, and he won, uh, it was a two-year term. He won twice back-to-back, so he was essentially gone for four years. And during that time, I think it was probably in his second term, he started a second company um, called Pet Screening. Mm-hmm. And so that definitely took him away even more from Park Avenue. And uh, that company had continued to grow. And John and I talked about it, and you know, he didn't need to sell. And people kept saying, he's going to sell, he's going to sell. And he said, why would I sell when I don't have to do anything and and it makes good money. But, you know, it's in capable hands. Why would I why would I sell it? But we talked about it and we knew there would be an opportunity at some point in time that made sense to us. We didn't want to be a roll up just to be a roll up. You know, um, it needed to be something that made sense for us, um, for our team. And John wasn't looking to sell and walk away. So the opportunity uh, came up. We we talked with Mike Catalano and uh, he just, we saw him ironically at an IMN conference in 2019. And John and I both knew Mike. The three of us just went to dinner and Mike was telling us uh, at that time, it was December of 2019, that he had this idea and told us his, his ideas behind pure property management. And it was very intriguing to John and I. And we just said, you know, let us know how things go. And once you get it lifted up off the ground, you know, keep us keep us updated. And it was really just a friendly dinner. And uh, COVID hit, of course, a few months later. And we heard from Mike again probably June, July of, of uh, 2020 during COVID. And Mike said, listen, I wanted to let you know that we've raised some money. And because of COVID, we've been building software. And we'd like you guys to come on board as one of the foundational acquisitions to be one of the founding partner companies with us. And, um, and so John and I talked about it and it, it just, it made sense because it wasn't a roll-up strategy. You know, it's a, it's, you get to work with some of the best of the best. I mean, some of the people that have come on board now with us, it's like, these are people I've called for years in the industry for guidance, for advice. And now I'm working side by side with them. And I've, you know, I've always looked at John that way, but there were others, you know, when John went, uh, you know, into the house of representatives, it wasn't always easy to get to him. And so there were several other people that I leaned on within the industry, which is so great about the industry too. And uh, and now I'm working side by side with a lot of those folks. And and that is really exciting. And John is still on board. You know, his role is almost identical to what his role was at Park Avenue. You know, I call him when I need him, you know, you know, all of us at Pure call him when we need him. And uh, and he's on an advisory board and and as a as as a partner there. And so it's it's uh it feels good. It's good for our team. It's good for us. And I feel like we're doing things a little bit different in the industry that others, um, you know, and, and nothing against anybody else that's out there. I think there's some really great companies out there. I mean, I've, I've seen what the others have done and how they've grown. It's very impressive. I like that ours has been more um, people focused versus doors. Uh, I think if you get the right people, the doors come. And so for me personally, since I, I kind of am at the forefront of, you know, talking to folks about Pure and, and assisting with, with acquisitions and, and corporate development, um, I have really enjoyed talking to people about it. And it's just conversation like you and I are having right now, but then they start asking questions. So I don't have to sell it. They ask questions if they're interested. They ask why we did what we did, and then they start asking us questions. And and it just kind of falls into place. And if it doesn't, at the end of the day, we're still friends. And that's okay with me too, because, you know, I always want to keep my friendships first. And how many units at the time of acquisition? Uh, how many did Park Avenue had? Mm-hmm. We had about 1,100, a little over 1,100. So you found yourself at a really interesting intersection and place in the industry. We, we jumped pretty far forward where you're at now and you are you're sitting in a really interesting spot and the role that you described makes a ton of sense for you you know a ton of people you're well regarded in the industry and you're able to facilitate those conversations and it leads to a positive outcome for pure which is fantastic i'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey in property management and kind of your growth as a leader you started off as a property manager 
Eventually you became the right-hand person, pretty much kind of running the show. And now here you are in this role. If you reflect back and you think about what your growth as a leader looked like throughout that journey, what did that feel like to you? It was interesting is when I first got promoted from property managers, I was the first property manager there. Um, when I when I got promoted at first to the manager over the property management division, because we had a small real estate division at the time, I was really nervous because a lot of the folks, I think I was younger than all of them that worked on the property management team. And so that was a struggle. Plus, you went from being a peer to being their supervisor, their leader, uh, that was a huge transition. And so it took a minute to sort of get my bearings and realize it's business and you do, you know, you you have to make the business decisions first. And John was trusting me to do that. Uh, but but that was a little bit of a challenge. But I, I sort of grew into that o- okay and, and followed his lead and the things that he had done with me with um, you know, every other week we did a portfolio review, you know, and just went through my portfolio so that, you know, I could recite things. It was funny because to this day, we manage several of the properties that I managed when I started there as a property manager. And and still the PMs today will say, how do you just know this? But it's because of those portfolio reviews. It was that cadence. It was that redundancy of, of talking about my portfolio where I knew the owners and I knew the tenants and I knew the properties uh, inside and out. And, and, and so I tried to take that and absorb everything I learned from John, from others in the industry, and implement that with my own team. And in some cases, I learned what not to do. Uh, after being the sales manager over the property management division, uh, we started expanding outside of just Charlotte and and uh, moved into sort of the Myrtle Beach area. And uh, so we expanded more into South Carolina, other areas of North Carolina, eventually getting into Atlanta, Georgia, uh, into Tennessee. And so I became a regional uh, manager. Uh, and then ultimately, once John uh, ran for office, I became the uh, executive VP of the firm, sort of running everything. By the time I got to that point, I felt like I understood a lot. Company culture was everything. Uh, You did not have to pay people a ton of money to make them happy. It wasn't always about giving somebody a raise. Recognition went a long way. Uh, we did things like we still do, by the way. We recognized work anniversaries. I I, I started recognizing, um, and, and John would recognize work work anniversaries, but I did it a little bit differently. And so I would print out a certificate. It had their years of service on it, and then for however many years they were with us, uh, they got scratch off lottery tickets for that number of years. And it was, I mean, you know, you're talking ten dollars or less for somebody to feel so great because we have a captain's bell that hangs. We have a bullpen. Uh, our office, you kind of walk in and it's a big bullpen and there's some offices sort of around the perimeter of the walls, but but it's big open space when you first walk in. And that's where we sort of do team training and things like that and, and social events. And so when you ring the bell, there's news to share. And so anytime there was recognition is recognition for anybody, whether it's a birthday, a work anniversary, we ring the bell. It's it's funny because there are like little ants. You see everybody come into the bullpen all of a sudden and uh, they just, they know that that's what that is. And it goes such a long way to do that recognition or just a thank you or, you know, even if it's someone's birthday or, you know, somebody just became a grandma. I, you know, we have one lady that she recently just had her fifth grandchild. Uh, and so those kinds of things go a long way. And they also know that when we ring the bell, it, it, it may be news that we have to share. That's We've all gone through moratoriums and things over the last year. So as soon as I get updates, I immediately ring the bell so that we can talk about it. And then, and then of course, we send it out to the company as well. But um, so those are the types of things that I learned. I learned very quickly, though, that without a culture that people thrive in, the work doesn't happen either because mm. they don't want to come in. If they don't want to be there, it's just a job. You want them to want to come into where they're going to be working. So that was a huge one that I learned. Uh, it took some time, but once I figured it out, now we've had staff. I think our shortest staff member right now is uh, just celebrated her second year. Everybody else is five years and up. Mm. I want to hear more about the people development side of things, but just quick, give me the the ABCs, the fundamentals of the portfolio review process. What did that look like, brass tacks, and what made it so so useful? Yeah, so it was door count. You always had to know what your door count was. Um, problem children, you know, red flags. Any owners that uh, you knew something major had happened recently. Anytime you have an owner that's all of a sudden they have a huge maintenance bill, it's a red flag because they all of a sudden think their property is not making them money and they're going to start looking for somebody else. So it was always sort of, we called it the watch list. We still do. Uh, so who's on your watch list? Um, how many doors do you have? Renewals. You're always asking about renewals. And of course, rent collections. Those are kind of your 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 biggest ones. 
And so the structure there, was this in a portfolio management paradigm? Yes. And was it pure portfolio? Was it more like a squad pod? Was there like a... Yeah. So initially, uh, we were all individual property managers. I was as well. So you did everything from A to Z on your... I did anyway. By the time I was done being a, a property manager... Uh, we did have a lot of changes that have gone on. We have since moved to the pod system. Uh, we started that. I remember uh, John was in office. I think it was his first year. And I said, look, I've got to talk to you about restructuring the firm. And this is the idea that I have. And I remember at first he was like, on paper, I like it. I don't know. I just don't know. And uh, and so it's it's funny because he'll say, I have to give you credit for that one because that was that was a good idea. We did we wanted to do redundancy in the roles. You have a property manager that manages a portfolio, 100, 200, 300 doors, pick a number, and they're gone. I don't care if it's a week on vacation or if they you have turnover and they leave. It upsets the apple cart of the whole firm because nobody has the bandwidth to take on that portfolio in that person's absence other than emergencies. And so if it's someone that's on vacation, they don't enjoy their vacation because when they come back, they're inundated with hundreds of emails and all this stuff that went on in regular day-to-day operations that nobody else could keep up with. And so we decided to change our structure. So we're kind of a hybrid between departmental and portfolio. Uh, So we have a customer care team. Uh, They help answer our phones. They do... um, customer experience surveys. They'll call residents after they move in to see how the experience was. They'll call owners after they sign up with us to see how that experience was. But they also call the owner again after the property is rented to find out how the experience went during that period of time. So those customer experience surveys through our customer care team help us identify where we have problems in our process. Uh, And those are two very important things is a tenant isn't going to renew if they're moving experience, you're already shooting it by at least 50% if their moving experience is not, it doesn't go well. if an owner is not onboarded well, they're already starting off on the wrong foot. Mm-hmm. And if they're not communicated with during vacancy, the most important time, you're already deteriorating your ability for them to want to stay on board with you. Uh, so we have our customer care team. And of course, they do answer our telephones and, and help in that realm. Um, and then we went to the pod structure. We outsourced our general maintenance requests. So we have a, a company that handles the general maintenance requests. Our team does turns in-house. They see what's going on because of the software tools that we use. Uh, so they always know what's happening in their portfolio, but we wanted them to be able to be focused on the customer experience as property managers. The pod is a two-person team. So you have your licensee, your property manager, and you have, you know, in theory, it's a property manager assistant. In our world, we, in our office, we call them an owner relationship manager and a tenant relationship manager. They have a shared email box. They sit in the same office. Um, they have their own personal uh, work-related emails as well for, for private inter-office communications. But anything related to their portfolio goes through that joint email box. Our goal, uh, and this is how we've structured the firm, when you start at the customer care team, you have the ability when when and if a spot opens up to roll up to a tenant relationship manager if you want to. And then those tenant relationship managers have the opportunity to roll up into an owner relationship manager. And we help pay for licensing and things if they do decide they want to go that route. So it really created multiple opportunities within the office for a variety of reasons. One, we had redundancy in the roles and cross-training. So if someone was out, they had a teammate that could help pick up that slack. Or if you had turnover, at least there wasn't a brand new name in front of the owner. There might be a singular new name to the owner, but not both team members. Um, and and so that has worked out well. It's really helped to, uh, to decrease the stress that owners have when there's any change in staff. And it gives the firm, the team, opportunities to sort of roll up. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you start at the customer care level, you're hearing so much when you answer the telephones. You get all the questions and you learn a lot. So it gives you that opportunity to take those leaps. So it really had a, a just a huge benefit to us throughout the organization on a variety of levels. How do you think about the growth expectations for each team member? It's fantastic to provide the opportunity and a path. At the same time, how much expectation do you have? I'm sure any owner would be thinking, boy, if everybody, if every person starting on the ground floor was a Jen Stoops, like, wow, you know, we'd just be going to the moon. At the same time, you got to be, there's, there's, there's realism, there's, aspiration and somewhere in the middle, how do you manage those expectations that you place on your team members? So when we hire, we do let folks know, look, you know, there's opportunity for growth. We always ask from within first. 
there are some people that are very happy. We have one lady, she's been in the same role for seven years. She doesn't want to do anything else. And that's okay too, because you have to have that as well. She does a good job at what she's doing and and she enjoys it. And she's like, I'm good right here. She just doesn't want to take on additional roles. You can't have everybody always wanting to take on those roles mm-hmm. either because you, you can't all be leaders, right? You can't all have, and there's only so many roles to give out. So that's actually worked out well. And usually they will, during reviews or things like that, they'll come to you and tell you. Um, and we ask often, you know, how things are going in their role. How, you know, what do they enjoy? What don't they enjoy? Because we're trying to figure out strengths and weaknesses within people. We've had some individuals that have asked to interview for, for particular roles. We've interviewed them. Knowing probably going into it that it wasn't going to be the right fit, but giving them the opportunity because if it doesn't work out where they end up being able to be moved into that role, we want to be able to tell them why Mm -hmm. and have them understand here's where your strengths are and here's where we could see a role moving for you so that you can try to help guide them that way. What does your internal review process look like? How cadence are how what's the cadence of performance reviews? What do those conversations look like? Performance reviews in general are usually on an annual basis. We do check-ins though with the um, the teams. The the pods are every week portfolio review, um, but we also on a quarterly basis. Uh, just do a quick sit down with her. So it's not necessarily a performance review. It's literally like a check-in. It's about thirty minutes. Because that's usually where you'll find out, are they having any issues with anybody else within the organization? Sometimes they don't always come to you right away. But when we say open door policy, we try to really show that we do have an open door policy. And even though they may not always come in to us, doing that on a quarterly basis as just a check-in, one, it takes the pressure off of them because they don't feel like every time you're sitting down with them, it's performance related. It is just a check-in to see how things are going. And you uncover a lot when you do that. Culture is a really amorphous, vague, nebulous sort of thing. If you try and put some more meat on that, what does it mean to you to have a great culture? What are you stewarding? What are the activities? What are the intentions there for you? I want people to want to be there. You know, when you walk in in the morning, I I don't want, and you're always going to have a day where you're like, I don't feel like going to work today, you know, but I don't want people to feel like that on a regular basis because I, I always used to tell John, the worst thing in the world would be for me to say to anybody, it's just a job. I've never felt that way about any of the jobs I've had, and and I don't want anybody else to feel that way because if you wake up and feel like it's just a job, there's no commitment there, there's no loyalty there, and they're not happy. And if you're not happy, you're not going to stay. And so you're trying to drive to where you want less turnover. It's going to happen because we have some young folks that I don't expect them to – you have to be half crazy to do property management. I don't expect them to be there for the rest of their lives. But I want the time that they are there to be enjoyable for them. And I want them to stay longer because they do enjoy what they're doing. So we do um, – on a monthly basis, we do a, a luncheon together. It's not a lunch and learn. It's just a luncheon. And uh, we'll take a break. So we usually do it for about two hours. And we'll do trivia or we'll do some other kind of a game um, during that. We, when we do training, we do training trivia. So if we've done changes to our lease agreement or if we've got a new process that just rolled out or with the eviction moratorium, I would create, and if it wasn't me, it was one of the other uh, ops managers, we would create questions based on what they needed to know after we've told them, hey, here are the changes, here's what's going on. And so then we would do training with them on the trivia. And so they're they're battling against one another. And, of course, we had different things from, you know, uh, $10, $15 gift cards to local restaurants to the scratch-off lottery tickets. So uh, we, on a quarterly basis, we do a social event. And it's not necessarily a social event where we're always going out. Of course, with COVID, that limited a lot of that. We, we do normally try to go somewhere. But we learned that we could do it within the office uh, and just get some beer and wine for them and have some games. And we'd let them choose, OK, what do you guys want to do tonight? Do you, you know, do you want us to bring in somebody to do trivia with us? Do you want to go across the street? There's a local bar across the street that when we have, whenever we go there, they do special drinks that have names relative to property management to the firm. Uh, and so they have a lot of fun doing that, too. And they have cornhole pits and stuff like that. So just trying to build to where they trust and rely on one another. Um, but they also enjoy being there and they know we appreciate them. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. 
To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. I'm curious to get your take on remote. Everything that you're describing really palpably feels in-person. It feels very in-person-y. This movement towards remote, first it started off just being driven by cost, right? Yep. I mean, that's really was the whole conversation. And then COVID happened. And now it's like, hey, you know, for a variety of other reasons, talent pool, team preferences, et cetera. How strongly do you believe in in-person and what are the opportunities you guys have availed yourself of with remote? Uh I do feel in-person is always the best. You know, it's a tough industry to be in. And I think just having those other shoulders to cry on and talk to on, and, you know, we have such a blend to in the industry of folks that have been doing this for 30 years and folks that are in it one, two, three years. And so the levels of technology knowledge, not even just the knowledge, the, uh, the ability to want to, to, to learn something new. I, th- I think it's just a fear. It's not that they can't. They're more than capable. We all are. We're more than capable of learning something new. It's sort of that fear of change. Um, people don't really like that. But our team did have to learn. We all did. All of us uh, in the industry, in every industry, had to learn how to cope with remote because of COVID. And so I did feel a little bit like we were losing some of that team touch. Uh, so what we decided to do was we started doing a Friday toast. So every Friday, and we were all on with one another all day long, uh, but you weren't always on video all day long. Uh, but we did realize that we needed, so we use the Slack channels. We use Slack at our office, so we have the different Slack channels, and and there's one that's company-wide. And so we'd be talking with one another through that, you know, and 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 we'd share, you know, funny memes and, and pictures and things just just to keep everybody sort of in a, in a light mood. Uh, but we would still do the work anniversaries and things. I thought, you know, we still have to do this. It was just we'd do it virtual. We would do a toast on Fridays. Hey, we got through the week. You know, we'll see each other again soon. And so everybody would get their drink of choice, and we would all raise a glass at the end. And, and I actually did that with a lot of uh, other colleagues in the industry, not even just within my team, but, you know, different forums I belong to, just different groups of friends uh, where we would, you know, every so often get on and, and and just say hi to one another and check in on each other and do a toast with one another. So that helped a lot in continuing. So I tried to take what we do when we're all together and figure out how to modify it somewhat, uh, doing it virtually and, and remote as well. Jen, what's your take on regulation in the industry? My observation is that the general sensibilities of the industry is more anti-regulation some of that I think is just the general political sensibilities are more right leaning. I think probably across the board, there's more, regardless of where people sit on that spectrum, they tend to default towards being anti regulation, a lot of concerns, eviction moratorium, moratorium. I think that's a really hot topic right now. On the whole, economically, for property managers, how do you think they should relate to regulation? There's what I personally think about freedom and policy as an American. And then there's the economic benefit to my business. Does regulation help, hurt? Is it conditional? What's your take on that? I think it's conditional. I think it's going to depend on what it is. The moratorium, without a doubt, hurt landlords. I understand completely the concern for residents not having a place to live if they were legitimately uh, on hard times, if COVID legitimately took jobs. And, and it did. Uh, but it also did to the owners of those properties. And the perception is that every landlord is wealthy Mm. and that all of the REITs that are out there own all of these properties, which I think they're less than like 10% of the whole ownership. So it's people like you and me owning one, two, three properties, and that's our retirement fund. And many of those folks still have mortgages on them. And they certainly have taxes to pay and insurance to pay. And so that's not free. And so I I think that there was this push to worry about those that were renting and that landlords were all bad. Nobody bothered to stop and realize that was a problem on both sides. Both sides were affected by that. And I'll be honest with you, a tenant that legitimately was going through a hardship, they're calling you. They're communicating Mm -hmm. with you. Uh, The ones that weren't, they're the ones that wouldn't with or without COVID. So that was a real big challenge. I, I do think it has changed the industry. Uh, I think that it has forced a lot of landlords to want to get out. Uh, sales were very high for, if you ask anyone in the industry right now, the sales market has been great in general. Mm. Enter COVID, 
And you had a bunch of landlords jumping ship because the regulations and too everything hot, else. Too hot, too much risk. Absolutely. Uh, I do think there's room for regulation to an extent as long as it's fair and reasonable. And and I didn't see a ton of that being thought through during COVID, unfortunately. I think, um, I think that we do need more affordable housing. Um, I don't know that I agree with source of income discrimination that a lot of areas are trying. Charlotte is as well. They're trying to implement source of income discrimination. Our view of the world is we don't discriminate against any income that comes in as long as that income can afford that property. And that's the challenge that you run into is that uh, it's being viewed as discrimination when you have, you know, $800 available to an individual or maybe a thousand, you know, depending on on what they're provided and they want a $1,500 home. And that landlord is is now being asked to take a thousand dollars instead of 1500, which is where fair market value is. So do we need to keep things to where they are uh, within fair market value? Yes. Uh, but should we have rent control throughout everywhere? Well, no, because then you're, you're, you're limiting the ability. I mean, that's the whole point. You want values to go up in everything that we do. But I, but I think it's a bigger problem where we're struggling with the level of income that people earn. So the eviction moratorium, super polarizing, these other flavors and categories of regulation, I guess the flip side of the coin of what I'm I'm curious to get your take on is there's a, a category and a flavor of property manager that says, forget my politics. What I be, believe to be true is that complexity, compliance burdens on the property manager are tenfold on the self-managing landlord. Therefore, what I do is in greater demand, in mm-hmm. in greater need. Do you are you sympathetic to that perspective at all? Even if maybe it's contrary to the kind of freedom minded sensibilities that some folks oh, have. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a huge value because landlords, independent landlords, are required to comply with a lot of the regulations that are out there. And if they don't know them, they're getting themselves in trouble and they don't even realize it. It's not as simple as always just managing your own property. Uh, so there is a ton of value because. And, and there's also a lot of opportunity for property managers to get in trouble because you have to know what's going on. And that's one thing that I think, I hope, a lot of folks in our industry that maybe weren't as legislatively involved, again, like you're saying, regardless of political affiliation, has nothing to do with that. If you're not paying attention, every state has had rules changing. There are some that are far less rule burdensome than others, but every state has had things that have changed. We all were affected federally, so that meant every single one of us was affected by the eviction moratorium. But not only that, that caused a lot of our states to implement all kinds of rules and regulations and laws in place that we now have to go follow. And if you're not paying attention to that, that's a recipe for disaster. You could you could lose your license over it. So NARPM has obviously done some advocacy work there. You've been involved in NARPM. What does your involvement look like right now? So currently I serve on the Government Affairs Committee, uh, on the National Government Affairs Committee. And then I do local and state, um, the subcommittee for local and state as well for North Carolina. Uh and as of next year, for 2022, I will be the uh, regional vice president for the Northwest region for, for NARPM National. Lovely. NARPM is one of the great things about our industry, represents that camaraderie, the community. I've, I really feel sometimes for folks when I meet and they just, they don't know about NARPM. Every, you know, it happens every it once in a while. You, you meet does. folks and they're like, eh, I don't know what, you know. From a distance, if you haven't been there, there's a lot. You wouldn't know. On right. the surface, it's like some training, some manuals. Really, it's community mm-hmm. is what it is. It's it's relationships. Absolutely. And for the folks that make something out of that, it's really, really rich. I mean, there's a lot of friendships. And obviously, it's not just all altruism. There's hard skills. Yes. There's training. There's knowledge. There's awareness. It's definitely one of the highlights of the industry. I'm curious to hear from you, from your depth of context, What's the flip side? If you could ma- wave a magic wand, what would you make different about residential property management? I uh, I would love to bring more awareness to landlords that the perception um, to the general public, to, to the prospective landlord that we would want to go manage for, is all you do is collect rent. And so if that's the view, how can we educate how can we, and things like this are, are a reason, things like NARPM, NARPM's name needs to get out there, I think, a little bit more. Um, in fact, I know it does, 
But because even within our own industry, I feel like that's a challenge for people to know unless they already know. But it's that perception that why do I need a property manager to collect mm. my rent? Mm -hmm. uh, I wish that we could get the word out there better to help them understand there's regulations involved. It's more than just collecting rent. There's so many steps. I had a landlord. Um, he has since sold his property, but we managed for him for six or seven years. He lived directly across the street from the property that he has a, had as a rental. And we managed it for him for six or seven years. They never knew he lived across the street. Mm. He didn't want them to know. He got it. And I wish more people would understand that because, you know, I've had some uh, clients that are like, why can't I have my tenant's contact information? And you can't tell them no, you know, as long as the tenant agrees to it. You know, you don't want that to happen. And we certainly avoid that at all costs. But there are times where sometimes you take over a property for an owner that had been managing for a tenant and they'll call you and go, I can't. They call me all the time. I just wish that word was out there more that the um, the self-proclaimed landlords would have an understanding of how much a property manager actually has to know and what they do to protect their asset. Love that answer. So I'd love to see some shift in some perceptions. But sometimes if you can't change the perception, you can still pick who you choose to do business with. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the universality there. You have the accidental, you have the intentional investor. For you historically, what's been the ICP, the ideal client profile? Who do you feel like is the right person to be to be going after and who's kind of on the, the margins? And we've managed for the gamut. So we've managed for the REITs. Uh, we started managing for um, the Wall Street REITs. We've managed for American Homes for Rent, Progress, Invitation, probably starting in 2010, 2011. Um, so that was interesting. That taught us a ton. That taught us a ton about reporting and what to look after. Things that most of us doing property management for the single family client that, you know, again, like you or me, we weren't doing that kind of reporting. We weren't we weren't monitoring things to the extent and and mining the data that institutional needed. Uh, so that was a great learning experience. The ideal client is that client that has no emotional tie to it. It's a business. And they understand, let that person go do what they're best at because my job might be an attorney or I'm a doctor or I'm not a property manager. So let my property manager be a property manager and let me go do my job. So to me, the ideal client is that individual that there's no emotion tied to it. The accidental landlords, they're great, but there's emotion there. That was their home. Most of the accidental landlords, in fact, all that we had, they couldn't sell their asset or they had to move suddenly. And so they decided to rent it out for a period of time. 95% of those, you know, hated every tenant that was put in the property. They wanted out as quick as possible. It was tough because that was their home. Uh, and they may or may not end up trying to move back into it. So that was a challenge. So to me, if you're going to be an investor, be an investor, and and you can't have the it's 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 money. It's an investment. It's a business. Um, there's risk involved with every investment and every business that you do. So let the experts do what they do, so you can go and do what you do. So I'm that guy. I'm that client. I'm Mr. Hands Off. Um, you got it. I hired you to be expert. I, I really don't want to hear about the details. I just want an outcome. It's predicated upon the belief that you are the expert. And so what does the demonstration or the proof look like? We get this distinction between functionary versus fiduciary. Everybody wants to be in the fiduciary category. Everybody wants to be trusted and deferred to as the expert. Not everybody is the expert. Professional property management. We, on the left hand, we have folks that are doing a, a B, a C level job. On the, on the right, we have the folks that are doing an A level job. What are the hard skills? What are the aspects of service that that really define where you're at on this spectrum? Uh, one, I think getting involved in your industry is huge. I think that means a lot, even if they don't know what NARPM is or, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm involved on our um, in North Carolina on our state Realtor Association board as well. I served, I, I'm the immediate past chair of our uh, property management division for the state, but I also am um, the vice chair currently of our state's legislative affairs, and then I'll chair that next year. And others in our, our firm uh, are involved beyond just NARPM. Getting involved is one, staying on top of it. But it, and even for us, we, um, we rebolstered our level of communication to our clients during COVID. It was amazing because things were changing so rapidly, especially in the beginning. We were constantly sending things out to update them as to what was going on. That was so well received. So it's amazing to me that staying in the know and understanding what's happening within your industry and actually communicating it out, what a difference that makes. 
it meant everything. And that shift in mindset to remember, communicate with your client, it's, it's literally that simple. And it's not just, oh, your tenant's late. Property management is a reactive industry, and mm. we're trying to turn that around to be on the more proactive side, which is why we have a pod you know, system in place, why we have a customer, customer advocacy, customer care team uh, to do these types of surveys. But also our property managers, if you see an owner that has a, a maintenance expense all of a sudden of $1,000 and, and they haven't had any major maintenance stuff going on, it's a red flag. Do not just send them an email. Pick up the phone and call and explain what's going on. In our world, that personal contact is really important. You may not get them live, but the fact that you actually tried to call and then you send them the info as to what's going on, it just goes a long way. When you understand what's happening in maintenance, when you understand if an owner calls you, you should know what's happening with their portfolio. Um, You should know what's happening with the eviction moratoriums, what's happening legislatively within your state, what happened with the HUD changes for emotional support and service animals and the distinction between Mm -hmm. those. Mm Those are things that if you don't know that and you're not helping to educate, uh, we do these um, these updates with our owners now. We, we have a quarterly update that goes out from each team. Um, it's, it's the same one that goes out throughout the firm. It gives them market updates. It tells them, you know, what's going on in the industry, changes that have gone on. But we've also recently, and I, I actually got this tidbit from a fellow uh, property manager, a fellow Mar- NARPA member. Um, they do a quarterly, uh, sort sort of like a podcast, but it's a live webinar for any of their clients to come on board and they have a topic, but they're allowed to then ask questions, but it's always recorded and then it's sent out to all of their clients. We've, we've since started doing things like that as well. You have to show them that you have the knowledge. And if you're developing the relationship and they trust you, they're not looking to leave you because the guy down the street is 1% cheaper. Mm. Most people leave not because they're not happy, but due to apathy. They just, they feel nothing. There's right. no emotional There's connection no emotional in the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just easy to snipe That's off. That's right. I'm curious to get your commentary on the state of the conversation around fee maxing in our industry. It's very popular. It's exciting. Makes more money. It can be really a life, lead to a life-changing outcome for folks that are in the business, working hard and not making any money. And in that case, I say, God bless. I'm excited for you. I'm excited if you actually make some money if you're working that hard. At the same time, I observe that in that conversation, there's some concentric circles, right? There are folks that want to add more value uh, and also want to make some more money. There are folks that aren't too concerned about adding more value, but they sure want to make more money. And um, then there's folks somewhere in the middle. You know, what do you take away from that conversation? How do you feel about it? How does it sit with you? What does or doesn't work for you about that? That whole conversation is very popular in our industry. It definitely is. I do think historically uh, our industry, if you look at the multifamily side of things, their fee structure and that they're not afraid to charge, um, right or wrong or however you feel about it, they've, they've been doing it for years. We were behind the eight ball as an industry. There's no doubt about that. And some people still are. I think they're just terrified of losing that client because they changed the fee structure. Uh, But things get more expensive. You can't have the same fees or those be your only fees forever and ever. It just, just, you know, things change. Um, And so I do agree with maximizing. But I do believe in, in what's the value add. If I am going to, you know, and if if we're adding additional things, whether it's relative to the fee or not, if you're adding a quarterly webinar that's live that your clients can get on, and it, it, that's not tied to a, a, a fee change per se, but if you do have a, a fee that gets implemented, a pet fee, you know, it's now non-refundable, it's easier for them to bear certain things if they have a value coming from you. But if there's no relationship built and they don't see any value already and now you go add fees on top of it they're all going to go running for the hills so there has to be that balance there i do agree that you you should uh, make money where you can i do think this was a a highly underpaid industry for a very long time Mm -hmm. um i think we're starting to see a shift in that but i think you have to do it carefully i i do also agree that when you have fees in place you shouldn't just you know always be doing one-offs and changing them your fees are your fees um, if you believe in them, there there shouldn't be a reason for you to always have to negotiate them. If you're always feeling like people are questioning it and having to negotiate with mm-hmm. you, you might need to reevaluate the fees that you have in place. Also believe in consolidating fees a little bit more. Um, rather than having 10 different fees, perhaps you have a few fees that are slightly higher, but here are all the values that you get for the fee structure that we have in place. It's interesting seeing fees be deconstructed. 
you can take a 10% just use a round number and you can drop it down to 5% by chopping up that 5% into a bunch of different stuff and it gets squirreled in, in different places. I think that maybe one thing that's being lost is clarity for the consumer of what exactly it is that they're paying for. That's right. And you have a 30 page contract and you say, well, it's all in the contract. Yeah. No one reads it. I don't know about you, Jen, but I'm not, I'm not heavy on that contract nope. thing. I'm like the delegate. I trust you. And a part of that, there's some trust in that. I want to trust you, which means not only are you competent, but you're going to take care of me, which means, boy, I would really rather not have to spend a couple hours to completely yeah. comprehend the contract and not have a gotcha. Yep. I don't believe in doing the hidden fees. If you're going to have a fee structure, line them all out. Uh, if you are only giving folks the basics of what they're going to be, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, you have a paper check fee. Oh, you didn't want to be paid, you know, via ACH. So you now have a paper check fee. Well, I didn't know I had a paper check fee. So they may have some of these ancillary fees that are not as prominent, but then they come up. And so an owner feels like you didn't tell me about that. It, 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 it could be a $10 fee, but if they didn't know about it, it's still a fee they didn't know about, and then that's upsetting to them. Uh, so if you're going to have, whether you have 10 different fees or five fees that make up a bunch of your different services all combined into one, you gotta, you've just got to be transparent about it. That, to me, is most important. I think if you're transparent up front, they either want to do business with you or, you, or they don't. And, and if you value what your fees are and you value the value you're bringing to your, to your prospective client, then stand behind your fee structure. But be transparent about it. I think that's the biggest issue that folks have is just that lack of transparency. And then all of a sudden, these one-offs start to happen and people don't like that. Goes back to intention. Right. What do you believe in? What can you really defend? I'm curious how you contextualize advice for folks that you run into. You're a fantastic mentor for folks. <laughs> you have the ability to speak to the different life cycle and phases of seeing it go from zero to 1,100 properties. What I observe is that there's a big assumption in the industry that growth is a universal good. Everybody should be trying to grow. People say, if you're not growing, you're dying. And while I feel that on a personal level, personal growth, it's not as obvious to me that everybody in the room should be trying to get to a thousand doors. In fact, in some cases, I think that guilt trip uh, it causes folks to miss out on an opportunity to be great at 200 doors and yeah. to make good money. How do you feel about the, the conversation of growth in our industry? I, uh, I've talked to a lot of folks and actually, I think the perception is door growth equals more money. That's not necessarily true. If you don't grow the right way, if you don't have staffing, if you don't, property management companies have a tendency to run lean on staff. Uh, so if, you, if you're trying to grow and you don't put the right things in place in order to do that, growth does not mean money. Growth does not equal more money in your pocket. It just, it just doesn't. The value comes from the relationship that you build with your clients, your fee structure. You can manage 200 doors, but if you have the right fee structure in place, the right number of staff members, whether they're remote team members or, or you know, in an office, it doesn't matter. If that's structured well, um, you're not having high turnover, you can make a really good living managing 200 doors. There's days where I'm, I scratch my head and I'm like, sometimes I just wish we were still small. <laughs> because if you're doing it the right way, you really can. So, if you want to make more money, you know, it's it's funny because I was on a panel a couple of years ago and I remember they said, you know, what's something you want to see for the future? And there were probably, it was an end of the day uh, panel session where they had everybody that presented that day mm. uh, on, on this panel. And the first probably five or six answers were growth. Mm. And I look at growth completely different to me. Growth is um, revenue. You can grow the revenue and you don't have to grow the doors. But again, that's about the transparency in the relationship too. So that's generally what 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 my view of it is. And when I talk to folks, I'm like, okay, well, growth what? Growth your in your doors or growth in revenue? Because they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, even better than revenue is profit, right? So over at Profit Coach, we reorganized the mastermind groups based on profit, which was fascinating. Oh, I bet. So zero to hundred K group, hundred K to 250, 250 to five hundred and a million dollar group, which nice. basically represents the number of what you're targeting in terms of your net operating income. And one thing that's really fascinating is that smallest group, the zero to a hundred, you have folks managing a hundred doors and you have folks managing 800 plus doors. Yep. And that's where it gets real interesting. Yep. Sometimes there's some sense of like, this is the wrong group for me. I've been misplaced. I should be in one of the the bigger, I'm managing, I got 50 staff, you know, and it's like, well, it's kind of, 
that's the point of being here is to have that conversation. That's right. You know, there's an awareness. There's somebody else managing just the shy of 200 units that's about to break into the second highest group. And the perception there is like, well, does this person fit in? It's like, yeah, it's it's numerical. That's yeah, how that works. that's right. That's exactly right. It's a great leveler. And what I observe is that some folks sacrifice the opportunity for profits because of this growth guilt trip. I experience some existential crisis from some folks. There's some heaviness sometimes I hear where it's like, I'm at 500 units and I just can't break out of 500 units. It's like, well, you're making money. I'm making money, but I'm just, I feel stuck. Talk to me about the kind of the, the ego journey of it. I mean, we all, we all have one. It's all showing up in the way that we do the work here. What are your thoughts on, on how you see the identity piece around entrepreneurship kind of playing into and affecting how people perform? It's interesting. Uh, for a long time, and I still see it a lot today, my perception changed years ago. But the perception is, oh, they're managing 10,000 doors. They must be the best. And and they're the best. I can't compete with them. I can't do this. I can't do this. And And I never really looked at it that way. I always looked at it as, are we growing our revenue? Um, are, are folks staying in place? Are we keeping our customers? Because they may manage 10,000 doors and we may manage 500 doors, but we've had the same owners for 15 years. In the 10,000 doors, they may have had 8,000 new owners in the last three years. Um, so I, I look at it more as I also wanted us to have a good reputation. So for me, it, I think the best of the best are those that I know have the reputation, not the doors. I'm not worried about who manages a certain number of doors. We're all doing the same stuff, and everybody's processes is a very fragmented industry. Everybody's doing the same things, but we're all doing it differently. Uh, so for me, one of the things I always wanted, and, and I, I think that you know, the combo of the minds that have joined with Pure so far, I think this is part of what we're trying to achieve is taking a fragmented industry and bringing some order and semblance to it, trying to help develop best practices by asking, you know, those that are coming on board, how do you do this? How do you and taking those best practices and combining them into a playbook? Uh, that's one way. And also the reputation, people first, whether that's the client, your staff, you know, the the residents. It's and so that was part of what was exciting to me is it wasn't about growing the doors. I I was more concerned with us being profitable because then I knew we could keep our staff and that meant we were doing good things. And if we were keeping clients, I wanted us to have a good reputation within the industry. I wanted us to help be game changers in how things were done and how property management and property managers were perceived. Mm. Mm. I really like that. I think about that contrasting that versus the vision for disruption and growth. Well, there's a lot of disruption out there. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of chasing after disruption and you read some crazy things and multiples and consolidation, et cetera. You know, Joe and Mike, I gotta tell them it was a hell of a play to get you involved <laughs> in what they're doing. That was one thing to their to their credit. You're the perfect evangelist. Well, I find you. in that conversation around disruption and some players that come in, it's really, really hard for a number of the outside players that have come in trying to do roll-ups to not be incredibly condescending. And it's never said, it's never stated, but there's this sense yeah. of, you know, I've found these group of people that don't know much and I'm going to roll them all up into my empire. And you feel it. I've kinda. had some of those conversations with, you know, people would try to recruit me away from John. And, and I can remember having conversations where, you know, and John always taught me, always take the meeting. And I always told him whenever those phone calls would happen, I would tell him about it. I had nothing to hide. I wasn't looking for a job. I haven't updated my resume since I, I went to work for John in early 2007. So uh, so I've always been very transparent with him. And then I always tell him what happens at the meeting. But it's been interesting because some of those conversations are like, well, I would always say, well, let's talk to John as well, because, you know, if it's good for me, it's going to be good for him. And I'm not I'm not walking away from the firm. I'm, you called me. And I can remember there were some conversations where people were like, well, if I get you, then there's no, and I'm like, yeah, I don't play that game. Mm. That's just not. So I've been in those conversations and it's been very interesting to watch those play out. And, um, and so that's part of what I think got John and myself very excited about Pure is that it wasn't just about growing the doors. It was about helping to change the industry and working with others, like I said, that that have 
been mentors to me for a long time within the industry. Really smart people. You know, we all always say, hang around with people smarter than you are. And I still believe in that. That's why some of the folks that I've talked to about Pure and that have joined Pure, they're folks that are definitely smarter than I am. And I've called upon them for years to help with with guidance. And I know John has as well. Uh, but there's no question, you know, we've seen several of them come out of the gate swinging. And we sort of kept a low profile because that's not what we're about. We're just trying to get a good group of people together. The doors will come when you have the right people. The revenue, the profitability, it all comes when you have the right team, the right people in place, uh, the right experience for the client. The rest of that all works itself out. And I think we've all learned so much. I know I have in my 15 years of what we've done well and what we haven't and where we needed to land and how to try to turn that corner to be a proactive industry versus reactive. I love it. Let's end it here, Jen. What's one worthy cause that you really believe in? Somebody had an extra, you know, some pocket change and they wanted to support something really worthy. What comes to mind for you? Um, so my nephew, um, when he, he's now a senior in college, so he, he's perfectly healthy. But when he was two years old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And I can remember uh, he was about three and a half. And our whole family uh, went to, he, he wanted to go to Disney World. And so we, the whole family, uh, it was my husband and I and uh, my sister-in-law and, and her two children, one, one being my nephew, her husband, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, uh, we were all, and my brother-in-law, we were all in Orlando together for Christmas. We, we didn't know if that was going to be his last one. Mm. And what Make-A-Wish does for those families and, and what I saw and what I witnessed, it was incredible. Um, he has since made a turn and it took, uh, he was diagnosed at two and a half he went into remission when he was around four, but he came out again right as he was starting kindergarten, and he had to get through five years. Uh, once he got through five years, they considered him cured. It took him until he was 12 years old to hit that five-year mark. So it was, it was a gamble. Now you'd never know. He's, you know. he's getting ready to graduate from WVU. He was a hockey player. Um, I mean, he's got the scars on his body from where his port was and things like that. But that touches home because I, I realized uh, being in it firsthand – the devastation, both financially um, and just emotionally, what families go through I, to consider the loss of a child, mm. I couldn't fathom. But that organization is absolutely incredible. And uh, my husband and I donate it to, to it every year. There's several others as well, but that's one that's near and dear because of personal, you know, the personal affiliation there. Beautiful. I love that. I hear the heart coming through and I'm really grateful <laughs> for you coming on. Looking I really to... appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah. I was nervous, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, looking forward to hanging out more this week. Appreciate you coming great. on and I really appreciate everything you're doing for the industry. You're I one appreciate of the good you. guys and you're making it a lot more fun to be here, just to be with people that really want to do right by the client and they care and they're playing the long game. I just want to tell you, it makes it more rewarding to be in the industry with people like you. So thank, thank you. you. I appreciate that. I feel the same way. All right. Until next time. You got it. Thank you. Bye.